Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast, where is Brandy Hall? Our last 24 hours. It was very anxious. I mean, like anybody who's arrested, you get very anxious. But her biggest concern from the time she was arrested throughout was always what's going to happen to her children if she were to go to prison. Um, and, and this is coming from someone who was vehement in her innocence and that she didn't know what was going on out there. But the charges were very serious, and her concern was always my kids won't have anybody if, her, if their dad and myself go to prison. And she was worried about that from day one, always. I know at one point I had interviewed a couple people. Uh, they wished to stay anonymous, but they did give me some information that they had seen Brandy the day that she was going to the Malabar Fire Department. And this would have been around 5.30 uh, dinner time, uh, 6 o'clock. She was seen at a house of somebody that was well-known to Brandy, um, a family friend. Uh, this individual and Brandy evidently had an argument uh, Sid actually had interviewed um, this individual, and in the interview, this they don't mention at all that they had any meeting with Brandy at their home that day. I'm John Torres, and welcome to the second update episode of Murder on the Space Coast Season 3, Where is Brandy Hall? where we're focusing on Brandy's last known 24 hours. Okay, so last episode we followed Brandy's movements, interactions, and phone calls during her last known day alive, August 17th, 2006, right up until she went to work that night for a volunteer shift at the Malabar Fire Station. We know that she was unhappy, perhaps even irritated, at the state of her life. She was without her dream job, she was forced to hustle at various jobs to make money, and her husband was about to be sentenced to prison in a day. We also learned that new charges against her had been filed by prosecutors in Osceola County, in connection to the drug charges her husband pled guilty to. It hadn't been a great day. She was unable to finish a construction job because of the rain, and now planned to finish it bright and early the following morning before going to her husband's sentencing hearing. We also know, depending on whose account you believe, that she had an argument with an old acquaintance shortly before leaving for her shift that evening as a volunteer with the Malabar Fire Department. And according to the private investigator, Nick Sandberg, the individual that he believes had an argument with Brandy had a lot of ties to the drug world and was a convicted drug felon himself. That got me thinking. The Palm Bay police have always ruled out drugs as the reason for Brandy's disappearance. But should they have? Remember this from the podcast? During Jeff's sentencing, Osceola Sheriff's Agent Lucas Rewalt testified in court that it was the largest operation he had seen in almost 10 years. Jeff said the enterprise germinated from 10 seeds that had been ordered from High Times magazine. But Rewalt said the operation encompassed a barn 
and a mobile home on wooded property. The cultivation systems included lights, ventilation, and irrigation systems that were powered by generators to prevent detection of power consumption spikes from the utility company. And I recently went to the offices of Funk, Sasha, and Diamond, who represented Jeff Hall on the drug charges. They were able to pull the files out of storage and showed me the diagrams, maps, photos, and other related documents in the case. And, look, I'm no expert in the sizes of grow operations, but it seemed pretty extensive to me. The generator itself was about seven feet tall. And in a recent recorded interview, Jeff Hall admits to having to get one that size from California after the one he had was damaged in a storm. Here is private investigator John Lind on the grow operation and whether Brandy's disappearance might be related. One other aspect is people keep saying, what about the drugs, what about the drugs, what about the drugs? Well, I was never a homicide investigator, but I was a narcotics investigator and have quite a background in that. And although there is peripheral evidence to be involved that something could happen from that, the investigation ended with the source, the people who were growing the drugs to distribute. And that was Jeff Hall and Paul Hirsch and potentially Brandy Hall, depending on how you believe that played out. And with that case we're still finding that the records for that case are somewhat murky and nebulous where, you know, they change the charges from cultivation to pollution, whereas Jeff Hall went to jail and took a conviction. Brandy's Hall case was still open with warrants being issued after she went missing for a pollution case while the original cultivation was dismissed. He uses two perfect words, nebulous and murky. If there was ever a case that was nebulous and murky, it's this one. Both men selling drugs, Jeff Hall and Paul Hirsch, took deals, implicated no one else, and served short sentences in prison. It always bothered me that when this was first reported, it was called a big operation. A million dollar a year pot farm, etc. Then it started to become less important. Nick told me the following well before these new drug tips began coming into his office. I don't think... All the law enforcement agencies in this investigation played well with each other. I, and and that's, that's quite common across the United States. But, you know, I've learned several stuff from like Osceola County Sheriff's Office, um, other interviewees that I've had and stuff that you have two, supposedly they downplayed it, low-level marijuana growers, um, Paul Hirsch and Jeff Hall. Um, they're growing, they're managing the in- instrumentation of the effectiveness, a $1 million, you know, plant profit that's going on, um, grow lights, irrigation, you know, that's a lot of maintenance. That's a full-time job to do that much. You said his generator was the size of your truck. Right. Wow. So, you know, a $25,000, you know, up to $35,000 generator, diesel generator, you know, custom, custom tanks on it that was welded, you know. Um, and, and you have a background with narcotics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like, you know, like working narcotics, not taking them. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you mentioned that a job like that is normally a three, a three person. You normally got some right? type of person, either somebody that knows somebody that's uh, in a higher up situational um, cartel or uh, level dealer that's around here that's moving stuff. Um, it's normally not Jeff and them. They didn't have street level users come into their house to buy an ounce of pot to smoke on the weekends. When a million dollar, you know, grow profit is going on, you, you have big bricks. You're not going to be moving that to the street level users. So normally you have the growers, you have the people that have the contacts, and you have the transporters. 
So I think there were more people involved with that. And uh, from what I can gather, I'm going to follow up on it with the Osceola County Sheriff's Office. But for the most part with Jeff and Paul, they seemed overly helpful, cooperative. Mm -hmm. And it's me, me, me. I did it. We got it originally from 10 Seeds from High Time Magazines. Come on. Like, you know what I'm saying? For whatever reason, the Palm Bay cops have always downplayed the drug angle. Remember what Detective Mike Pusatier told me a few years ago about it? I interviewed Jeff Hall and Paul Hirsch, who was arrested with them. And both of them said, no, this was, we're just kind of getting started. We'd only been doing it for a relatively short period of time. They would sell to one person and one person only that Paul Hirsch knew, and they would never tell him who that is because it was somebody that he'd known for years and years and years. And they said, look, we, did, we were the ones that were growing it. We were the ones that did wrong. We'll take our lumps. Right, and okay. so there was, there was no um, exchange of information for a reduced sentence kind of arrangement for him. He was pleading guilty to the charges. Gotcha. And so if you're pleading guilty to the charges, there's really no reason for somebody to come out and try to kill you or send a message to you to be quiet because th- there's nothing. He is erratic on anybody. Correct. Gotcha. So that kind of discredited a lot of those theories. We still look at that and you still monitor that to see, okay, well, maybe, but the longer I investigated this, the very le- much less likely do I believe that that's a possibility. Right. So Brandy, in at least one scenario, has an argument with a known drug felon who may or may not be involved in her husband's operation. Like I said, not a great day. She gets to the fire station at 6.30 p.m., and six minutes later, she talks with Randall Richmond on the phone for 11 minutes. And as I mentioned last episode, this was only one of 87 times they contacted each other that day. Let me repeat that. 87 times. There were 11 phone calls and 76 texts between the two. I spent a day and a half just going through phone records and color-coding everything to make it easier to understand. When I showed my wife the list of calls and texts, she immediately said it looked like two people arguing. I don't know. To me, it looked like two people in love who were being flirty with each other all day. But you know, my wife is usually right about stuff. And of course, without seeing the text messages themselves, we'll never know. The police have told me in the past that they only have the records and not the messages themselves. And I'll take them at their word and just say that it's a shame we don't have them. Could it have been an argument? Could Brandy have been pressuring Randall to leave his wife, knowing that her own husband Jeff was going to prison the following day? That was Sid Ladau's theory. Or could it have been about money? Was Randall worried that Brandy wouldn't be able to keep up with the payments on the skid steer, the piece of equipment he was financing for her? I don't buy that theory either. Randall knew Jeff was going to be sentenced to jail back in April, four months earlier, when he financed the skid steer for Brandy. So for him to worry about it now really doesn't make sense to me. Hey, if you like investigative journalism like this and what we do with our free podcast, Murder on the Space Coast, Please give us a five-star review on whatever app you are listening on. And please consider a digital subscription to Florida Today. The cost is less than a cup of coffee per month and would go a long way to ensure we can keep doing this. Just go to floridatoday.com backslash 321murder or call 877-424-0156 and use the promo code 6-8K to receive a special offer exclusively for podcast listeners. 
Now, according to Sid's notes, 90 minutes later at about 8 p.m., Brandy sees fellow firefighter T.J. Sherwood on the phone with his mother, Lynn Troop, one of Brandy's closest friends. She takes the phone from T.J. and talks to Lynn. Brandy asks Lynn to call Jeff because he is in need of moral support. So, even though Brandy was complaining about Jeff during the day, she's still asking friends to help him because he's worried about going to prison. And she's worried about his mental state. Brandy was at the fire station that night for a special training session. And there was no contact between Randall and her between that 11-minute phone call at 6.36 p.m. and the next time he texts her at 9.38. But at 8.44 p.m., something very interesting happens. Randall calls Jeff to tell him that he will be in court the following morning to offer his support. The phone call is only one minute long, so I'm not sure if they actually spoke or if Randall just left a message saying, hey, uh, I'll be in court tomorrow for you. And here's a clip of Florida Department of Law Enforcement agents asking Randall about that call one year later. Well, I, I know there was a phone call between you and Jeff about you coming over to testify for him. That was the next day. Okay. Wasn't, wasn't it? Yeah, wasn't there one the night next before day. about that, that you were going to be there for him? Yeah, yeah, there was. Tell me about that. Well, I just, he was worried about um, uh, his, his court thing. And uh, and I told him that I'd be there, and and that's, that's about all I can remember. Remember that it's important. When he's done with the call, Randall calls his wife from the fire station. Remember, he was working that night as a fire captain for the Palm Bay Fire Department, about five miles from where Brandy was. At 9:02 p.m., Jeff calls Brandy's cell phone. He says he doesn't remember this call. Maybe it was to relay the good news that Randall said he would be in court to appear as a character witness. But as we know, Randall had changed his mind and decided he would not be testifying in court. Here he is talking to investigators a year later. He mentions a phone call to Brandy, but it's not clear exactly when this call took place. We will have to assume it was made after Brandy left the fire station, but we will get to that later, and not on one of their next telephones, which had a walkie-talkie feature on it. So you call Jeff and you tell him you're going to be there, all right? Then what happens next? I talk to her, I don't know how many times that evening. Okay. Um, boy, I can't remember that, but, um, you know. Did you tell her during that time that you weren't going to go? I think, yeah, I told her that in one of the conversations, I believe, that I said, you know, I I've, I've, don't think I can do this. I don't think in the position that I'm in, you know, with the fire department, that I could, that I could go do that. Okay. Had you ever been told not to do it or anything? I mean, command staff or anything like that ever told you that you couldn't do it? No. No, and as a matter of fact, I don't think I ever even asked them. I really don't know. I don't remember. So the chief or no one else had ever said you can't go testify on his behalf or anything? No, because I don't think I'd ever ask him. Okay. I mean, no, nobody ever came out and volunteered that, you know. Okay. It just said it wasn't to known. So. Okay. Yeah, maybe it wasn't known. <clears throat> so. Right. When you called Jeff and then you and, and uh, Brandy, as you said, there was a, a number of calls. Um, when you all started talking, 
you tell her that, how does she react? Um, well, she was, you know, a little upset that, you know, well, you told Jeff you were going to be there, and, you know, he's counting on you. And, you know, I said, yeah, I said, I know he's counting on me. And I said, I'm sure he's counting on a lot of people to come in and stand up for him and, and, and say something. I said, but, you know, you got to remember, you know, the position I'm in, you know, as a public service employee and a captain at the fire department and everything else. I said, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't, I just can't do it. I don't think it's going to look good. You know, I don't think it's going to do... Um, do my career any good, you know. And, you know, I think she was, you know, uh, let down that I wasn't going to help. So or, she or, wanted you to help him. Yeah, she wanted me to help him. Like I said, the timing of that phone call may be later that night or could even be a conversation they have in person. Anyway, Brandy and Jeff talk again at about 9.30 when she calls from the fire station to say goodnight to her children and to say their nightly prayers with them. Brandy's mother, Debbie Rogie, said she also spoke to Brandy that night, though I don't see the call on the records I am looking at. It's possible Brandy used her Nextel or the phone at the fire station. Well, I, like I said, I talked to her every day or saw her every day and talked to her the night before. And she, you know, she's always, you know, she was at work at the time that she always call if she was working that day she always would call call me and call the kids and say their prayers and told her I'd see her in the morning she asked me if we were going to be at the courthouse and I said yes and so that's the last time I talked to her at 9:38 Brandy gets a text message from Randall she answers the text at 10:18 he responds at 10:20 Brandy responds to him at 10:43 and what follows is a rapid fire of 10 more texts in the next 14 minutes. It was sometime during this text storm that Brandy informs her chief that she's leaving. Now, the police have told me that Brandy informed her co-workers that she was leaving for the night because she wasn't feeling well, while other reports and other interviews I've seen say that Brandy told co-workers she was coming back. We've seen the grainy video of Brandy leaving the fire station. We also see her talking to a few fellow firefighters. That was something that always puzzled Brandy's mother. And so private eyes Nick Sandberg and John Lynn set out to find what that conversation was about. One of the things after meeting with Debbie Rogie, which is Brandy's mom, um, she had insisted that she thought that somebody on tape or video had talked to Brandy before she left the fire department. We were able to find out who that was, what the conversation was about. Um, It doesn't play in directly to the case as we know at this point yet. It was peripheral. But we're at least able to bring that piece of information to put her mom at ease, which I think serves a purpose. So basically we have Brandy. She's at the fire department for a training. We have her speaking with fellow firefighters and making a phone call home to Jeff and her kids. We have Brandy leaving the fire department. We know who it was that was with her in that conversation after the training. We know who spoke to her in the parking lot. We know the gist of the general conversation that took place. The private investigator downplayed the conversation, but I think it's very important. Apparently, he says, a fellow female firefighter wanted Brandy to know that she was romantically involved with another firefighter at the station. She was telling Brandy, in a friendly way, that her new love interest was off-limits. I can't speak for Brandy or anyone else, but I think that would make me feel uncomfortable at the least, 
and possibly agitated. Why do I think it's important? Well, I think it could go to Brandy's mindset that evening as she was leaving the fire station. It had already been a crappy day, right? Argument with Jeff, argument with someone else, Rain postponed her construction job, husband hours away from going to prison, and now, now this. A woman telling her to stay away from her boyfriend. At 10.50, Brandy sits in her truck and uses her cell phone to call her Nextel number in order to listen to her phone messages. And then she drives away. Next time, on Murder on the Space Coast, Where is Brandy Hall? Her final 24 hours. With those 26 minutes, I mean, obviously, that is not a 26-minute drive, even pumping gas, going from the Malabar Fire Department to where, supposedly, she had met with Randall. One of the things about this case, if you have listened to Murder on the Space Coast, for those of you listening out there, if you haven't, I recommend you do it. Uh, during Murder on the Space Coast, you talked about life being strange, real life being stranger than fiction. And uh, I can tell you that in this case alone, there are things that still have yet to come out that are even stranger than fiction. If you have any information as to Brandy Hall's whereabouts, please call 1-800-423-TIPS. That's 1-800-423-8477. Calls are anonymous and are not recorded. To subscribe to Florida Today, please visit floridatoday.com backslash 321murder. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to whereisbrandyhall.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thank you for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.